Hi, this is Dan Mishkin. I'm the co-creator of Amethyst Princess of Gemworld and Blue Devil for DC Comics, currently the webcomic Amazon Academy, and you're listening to Spoiler Country. It's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on spoilerverse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. If you scored high scores and you listen to this show, you're a nerd. Welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That is Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, well, it's Dan Mishkin, isn't it? It is. And he is the co-creator of Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld, and Blue Devil. <laughs> and you know we talked to Gary Cohn a while ago, who's the yeah. co-creator of those characters with Dan. And now we've got Dan on and uh, Jeff and Dan had a little bit too much of a good time because they talked for like two damn hours. So you got, yeah, they got along two really, really today. well. Yeah. They got along. Well, you got two episodes today. One part is obviously the first part and part two will be the second part coming out later today. Yeah. So why don't we just get into the first part? Cause I want to hear about Amethyst and listen Maybe to a TV show. Dan in their own words. Listeners of Spoiler Country, today on the show, we have the fantastic Dan Michigan. How are you, how's it going, Mr. Michigan? Fantastic, I guess, because you just called me fantastic, so I'm going to go with that. <laughs> well, hey, you, you've created um, some fantastic characters. We'll get to you in a little while. So how are things going in your world right now? You know, like everybody's world, it's a little strange. Although, I should say that for a writer who just sits behind a computer, it's in a lot of ways, not so different from my regular life. The the thing I miss is going to the grocery store because that's where I do my socializing. Usually I meet people from the neighborhood in the produce section of the grocery store and we chat and I found out, find out the neighborhood gossip and all of that. (laughs) So I'm missing that. And, and we have a, we have two new grandchildren, one of whom lives nearby. And so we're being extra careful about our exposures and things so that we congratulations can, we can see thank you so we can see our 13 month old granddaughter regularly which very her parents cool. are very happy to have happen because it means they get babysitters while they're trying to work at home <laughs> uh, yeah. but that's very good so you're basically experiencing a certain level of um, isolation yeah. are you getting assuming your groceries are being delivered then Usually we're doing pickup now, you know, the kind of no contact pickup where you do everything over the, on an app on the phone and then they, and then you just pop the trunk when they 
ascertain that you were the person who's supposed to get the order. Yeah. So it's uh, now it's, when, it's, when now when you're interacting, like you said, because you're with, either with your granddaughters or whatever. I get the feeling that right now, because we can't literally do activities, as it were, our relationships with people are now so much more based on conversation than the activity. I mean, I get, you, th- you think that would be yeah. accurate? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, we, you know, with with my children and the two grandchildren, it's video calls and being able to see what's going on. But, you know, I live in my head a lot of the time anyway. I do ride my bike. I'm I'm an avid cyclist. So, so that's something that I can do without fearing that, fearing exposure to the uh, coronavirus or, or fearing that I'm going to be, you know, exposing other people in case I have it and don't know it. So that's a good, that's a good activity to have in my hip pocket when I need it. What are you, are you working on anything right now? Yeah, I'm working on, on three, three different things at various rates of speed. I am, I'm doing a web comic called Amazon Academy, which you can find at amazonacademy.net where we have, I think, 25 pages up. It's it's really good. It's something that fans of Amethyst will really enjoy. I'm doing it with my artist friend, Jersey Drozd. And the hang-up with that has been that he got a well-paying job and it made it harder for him to actually produce this work on the side. So, so we've sort of been on hiatus, but... We're hoping to get back to Amazon Academy. I'm also working on a on a prose novel for middle grade readers. I mean, it's really, I think my audience, where I normally gravitate to is the upper elementary and middle school reader. So I, I'm, I, I think I'm doing the fourth major revision now of this novel because I've got an interested party, but despite what I just said to you about how... I write for middle grades, you know, upper elementary. They're concerned that some of the stuff is coming off as too young adult. And it's like, unfortunately, that includes stuff that happens in the climax that kind of has to be there. So I'm having to do this rewrite and figure out how I keep the integrity of what my story is and go with the understandable concern about meeting the audience. So that's kind of a... And I was going to say it's a pain, but it's not a pain. It, it's a challenge, and challenges in writing are good. So I'm doing that. So, and then the third thing is I'm starting work on a on a graphic novel. Both the prose novel and the new graphic novel are Jewish-themed oh, or cool. Jewish content, which is kind of interesting. And so I'm working with a organization that is foundation-backed, and they put Jewish books in the hands of Jewish kids. And, you know, they would help me along with my agent to find publisher for each of these things, which is wonderful. Their imprimatur makes a big difference to publishers who are thinking about publishing a book. But I have to, I have to get to them. So anyhow, my, my, my graphic novel is, I think, you know, anybody can read it. But it's especially because the main character doesn't care very much about his Jewish heritage at all. But he, he meets a, he meets a... MIT computer scientist turned rabbi who who is combining her interests in artificial intelligence and Jewish mysticism to create the world's most advanced artificial intelligence. So and it's, an, sounds, advent, and it's an adventure story. That's that sounds very cool. Um someone who I'm also Jewish as well. 
And I always do find it interesting, someone who also is a comic book fan, that while a lot of Jewish creators kind of started the genre of comic books, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of characters in comic books that are openly Jewish. It's so interesting. You know, of course, all these people, like in the 40s, were trying very hard to assimilate. They lived in an, in an era of pretty serious anti-Semitism sometimes. And so, so, you know, Jacob Kurtzberg becomes Jack Kirby and tries to be as all-American as possible. Now, you look at this stuff and the Jewishness comes out if you're paying close attention. My friend Danny Fingeroff, the former Spider-Man editor and, and comic book writer and has a great recent biography of Stan Lee, Danny wrote a book called Disguised as Clark Kent, which is about the Jewish origins of comics and about that assimilation process and how it really kind of, it's kind of all there anyway. I, I um, One of my favorite Superman stories of all time is Superman's Return to Krypton, which was published, I think, in 1960. So I was would have been seven years old. And... Superman somehow, I don't even remember how, he goes back in time and goes through space and he's back on Krypton and he meets his parents and his baby self. And and it's full of this, this kind of longing for a destroyed, never-to-be-returned past. And I don't think Jerry Siegel was writing that story and saying to himself, and Jerry Siegel, creator, co-creator Superman, wrote this story. And I don't think he was saying to himself, you know, what this is really about is the lost world of Eastern European Jewry. But if you read it that way, I think it's pretty clear that the lost world of Krypton in this story is standing in for the you know, the murdered six million and the lives that they led. So it doesn't show up on the surface, but it often shows up if you just take a little tiny peek beneath. Do you think is do you think there was a subconscious part of him that did want to tell that aspect of the story and that's why it is there? Or do you think it is something that we can just see because we're looking for it? No, I think my sense, I didn't know the man. What can I say? As I, and again, I was seven years old, and I'm so I'm looking at it now. I, and but I know my own writing. I know things that come out that I only look at afterward, and I say, oh, I was drawing on this piece of my own experience without even realizing it. I, I, I just have the sense that Siegel was the reason that he had this. This idea for not only for Superman to go back to Krypton, but to have it be really a wonderful but lost place. The reason that idea came to him, I think, is because of his awareness of the lost world of Eastern European Jewish life. So, yeah, I, it, wouldn't I, I, have, it wouldn't have occurred to, you know, Chris O'Toole or somebody like that, you know. But it would, but it would occur, <laughs> or you know, what, whatever non-Jewish name you want to come up with. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's. I think the story came to Siegel because of his Jewish identity. 
And I think I heard somewhere, and I might just be, you know, pulling on strings a little bit, but one of the ideas about this or the symbolism behind the secret identity kind of thing is a very Jewish idea, as you were saying, about Americanizing oneself or hiding oneself within to gain public acceptance. Right, right. I think that's true. And by the way, if you have not read Gene Yang's Superman Smashers of the Clan, I have not um, yet, unfortunately. It's, I just read it. It talks a lot about that. It involves a Chinese-American family, and it also involves Superman actually sharing or realizing that he shares some of their experience and that he is hiding himself. And it's, boy, it, it's right up there with Superman's Return to Krypton now as one of my favorite Superman stories ever. But I'll tell you my other, since we're talking about that, I'll tell you my other favorite Superman story, which is going to really sound like it's totally out of left field. Okay. It's, I mean, there's great Superman stories. There's, uh, but a lot of them are, you know, they're limited series or there's like Alan Moore's, here's how I would end the entire Superman story. And that's a little unfair to compare those. Like a Superman for all seasons, I love. The Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. But it's, you know, it's, it's meant to be this standalone thing that doesn't have to worry about continuity and all of that. If you can write a story in continuity that just appears this month, just because that's what the writer came up with and what the artist drew, and it's great, then that's really impressive. And Gene's story, too, I mean, fits in the category of special case, right? But so my, here's my other favorite Superman story. My friend Dan Jurgens did a Christmas story called Metropolis Mailbag, which was, of course, the name of the letter column in Superman way back when there were letter columns. And it's the story of how Superman once a year answers all the letters uh, <laughs> and responds cool. to them, you know, and then goes to some people and helps them and stuff like that. And it's, and it's a great story. And I'm really, I mean, Dan did great work on Superman, did the whole death of Superman and even more than that, the the return of super the the reign of the superman storyline dan of course was not working alone on those there were four books coming out but he did wonderful work but this one that really stands out for me is that metropolis mailbag story it was just full of heart you know and i go for that well we, we had on i think it was maybe three months ago we had on jerry ordway Talks to talk Superman, and I'm trying to remember. I've been trying to, as you're talking, I'm trying to remember the issue number. But there was an issue where Superman goes back in time and helps the Jews on a train on the way to, I think it was Auschwitz. Yeah, I sort of, I sort of remember that. And uh, go ahead. Yeah, and I just found, and I read that story. And I just found it was such an important story, not because not only because we know Superman's real origins as being, you know, as from the creators. But yeah. once again, from a, a view of history, I just thought it was extremely important story for to be in a comic book. Yeah, oh, I think that's true. I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, Jerry, as far as I know, is not Jewish. Is Jerry Jewish? I don't think he is. I can't couldn't can't remember to be honest with you if he was or not. I might have asked him. But it's like you know, you're more likely to see Jewish stuff from non-Jewish creators. It's a funny thing. I think, although I think that the you know more as we say in what I think is an odd phrasing, openly Jewish, the way people say openly gay, it's like you're, you're <laughs> revealing something unsavory. Um, right, right, right. But, but, but that, it took people, it took like 
African American and Asian American and and other minorities. I mean, Jews are a minority too, but we've assimilated because of you know the privilege of whiteness and all of that. Yeah. Uh, for the most part, all right, right. The it took like people like my my late friend Dwayne McDuffie, you know, doing something like Static, and that the whole milestone line and saying and saying, you know. I love these comics. I also want to see characters who look like me, and I think that black kids want to see characters who look like them. It wasn't until people were doing doing that whole, you know, in the New York publishing world, the might be called the let's call it the trade publishing world. Yeah. There's there's the hashtag own voices like speaking in, in your own voice. And so you, it's a big, especially in kids lit now, there's a lot of own voices stuff. And this was happening in comics, you know, now 30 years ago. And it was great. And it wasn't until, you know, you know, black and Asian and Latino creators were speaking in their own voices and creating characters that looked like them. But I think, Jewish creators started to feel more comfortable doing it, which is, I don't know, kind of, yeah. kind of interesting. I, when, I I got into the, when I got into the business, this is, I told my first story in 1979. I mean, pretty much everybody, not everybody, I mean, people like Denny O'Neill and Jerry Conway and like that, but, but pretty close to everybody was Jews and Italians, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, still. You know, you know, this is now 40 years after the birth of, of the comic book industry. That's who it was. Um, but they were not writing about Jews and Italians. That's for damn sure. <laughs> yeah, and I must admit, I think the first story I've ever read that I recognize as being, as you said, openly Jewish, was Mouse. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. That made, that made the first one I, where I literally, where I felt there was an active attempt to dis, to recognize being Jewish. And once again, and since that point, I don't usually don't see that in comics. And as, as we're talking about Superman as well, mm-hmm. I find Superman's imagery tends to be more of Jesus and Christian, even though he has deeply Jewish roots, which I find right. interesting. Right. I mean, there's that, there's this, there's a very specific Jesus iconography in the movie Superman Returns, the one that Brandon Ruth was in, where he's... Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, oh, that's interesting. Although, and people, I think, badmouth that movie a little too much. I mean, first of all, I'm a sucker for Superman. So I'm, <laughs> willing to, I'm willing to bear a lot. I mean, I have our downstairs bathroom is entirely done in Superman. We had to buy three <laughs> times as three times the boxes of floor tiles that we really needed. So yeah, we could have red, yellow, and blue. <laughs> that's um, awesome. And there's, you know, figurines and and art on the walls and all of that. Yeah. Stuff. But, but, but the other Jesusy thing that I in Superman Returns that I really liked was I, I think Lois is kind of getting on him for having a savior complex or something. Yeah. And he says, I hear thousands of people every day calling out to be saved. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, like with his super hearing, right? He's just, so it's like, and that was, you know, that was a nice counterpoint. And if it gets Jesus-y, that's okay. You know, I'm, I had an English teacher in high school who once referred to Catholics and non-religious people. So you know where she was coming from. <laughs> exactly. Uh, 
<laughs> and, yes. But but I will say I agree completely with you on, on Super, uh, Superman Returns. I think Superman Returns has some fantastic moments. It yeah. only suffers from comparing it so closely to Christopher Reeves' Superman. Yeah, right. It's yeah, it's hard. It's hard to do that. Well, if, if you compare it to the later Christopher Reeves Superman, it's it's a lot better. True. True. Um, very true. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll see. And and did you see ever see um and a uh, Man of Steel? Yeah, I so I liked Man of Steel. I didn't love it, but. My feeling about it was that it, it's not the final version of Superman. It is a version for that particular moment in time. And as a Superman for that moment, I think it worked pretty well. As, you know, Jonathan Kent wants to, you know, keep this secret. He's, you know, man, I... I practically come to tears in the first Christopher Reeve movie when Glenn Ford, you know, says you're here for a reason. And yeah. I, know, I don't know whose reason. I don't know what the reason is, but it's not to win football games. Right. Uh, or, or not to score touchdowns or whatever it is he says. But this is a different podcast and he's living in a different world. And I think that it's i think that it works and, and i look i cry every time pocket gets killed no matter which pocket and, and no matter what circumstance and i was heartbroken when the kevin costner jonathan kent was killed as well you know i also no no i'm sorry i'm thinking of batman versus superman so forget that the the other thing about man of steel is that people really come down on the fact that he kills Zod. Yeah. And I I was kind of okay with it. I was more bothered by the kind of the disaster porn element of it. Yeah. You know, the all right. But the fact that he kills Zod, I mean, this is not the Superman I've been reading for take a deep breath. I'll take a deep breath here, okay. Not the <laughs> Superman I've been reading for for sixty-two years. Oh my God! <laughs> uh, but it's the it's the Superman who's just figuring it out. If if they had, yeah, I was really I was sorry that they went to do Batman versus Superman for a number of reasons. But one, so we've never gotten a Superman movie from this creative group yet, really. Yeah. Man of Steel was sort of the intro, the origin, the, this and that. I was really looking forward to the the killing of Zod being really the impetus for whatever is going to happen in the next Just Superman movie, where as a result of that, he realizes that's something he can never do again. I, uh, I, and, and I agree with you. I agree with you completely. I, I think they lost a story beat there by not investigating what that would be like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was really looking forward to a Daily Planet and Superman in, Rep in Metropolis story, a movie where he's got it figured out now. And it's okay to, you know, to to have it to take a while to figure it out if the if you can make the if you can make the story work. I mean, there's a there's a um, my prime example of a movie, a superhero movie, where where it's about him figuring it out 
but it doesn't work is the is the Daredevil movie that that starred Ben Affleck. Okay. He's like he really only becomes Daredevil at the end of the movie. Mm. He only figures out who Daredevil is supposed to be. There's some wonderful moments in the movie, but he's kind of a jerk, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, not Ben Affleck. I mean, Matt Murdock. You know? Right, right, right. Yep. He, he's, he's, and it goes on too long. In, in Man of Steel, you see that, that he's building the character. You're not surprised by the fact at the end of the movie, you know? And that's a, that's a big difference. Yeah, it's part of that he goes on the, is he working on a fishing boat or something? Yeah, yeah, I can't remember the, what type of boat, but yeah. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I was going to say, and I think the, what you mentioned earlier about the destruction porn that they had in Metropolis, I was surprised that they didn't do a simple fix, fix to that, which would have been Superman trying to get Zod away and Zod, understandably, not wanting to leave where he has the most power, which is the threat of destroying the city. I figured... In right. a moment, you could have had that shot, and then you would have just accepted that the destruction has to happen. Yeah, I think you could. I think you could do that. I, I still, I've, been, I've grown, I've grown somewhat sour on all of this. It is, in my opinion, the Wonder Woman movie, which I loved, is really marred by the final battle with Ares. It's way too much, and it, it comes pretty soon after the, as I remember anyway, the battle for no man's land yeah and that one is so powerful and heart-filling and all of that to have to then have a battle that's just bam wham bang is like really undercuts what you know what you got earlier i mean i know that it's that aries is trying to convince convince diana that that the you know the world of war of mortals is not one that she should be defending, right? Um, yeah. Fine, but you know what? I would have rather that they had that discussion over a game of chess. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, anyhow. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I do feel that what we see, especially in the DC movies is more of a modern cynicism that doesn't exist in the Marvel movies, but it is a certain cynicism there. And I think you're also getting that cynicism beginning to creep or has been creeping into comic books for maybe the last 20 years or so as well. Oh yeah, I know it's look, when we did blue devil, the tagline that DC came up with, this is 1983 was we've made comics fun again. So it's not like that issue has not been there for a long time of the the darkness and the disturbing stuff it's you know it's and one of the reasons one of the reasons i sort of i was not sort of called upon to to do comics at dc i wasn't a go-to guy anymore was that i still wanted to write what i wrote which was a comic that a 10 or 12 year old would happily read not cynically I, it really bothered me that the answer to the question that I think is a legitimate question to pose to a superhero or to superhero comics in general is, is isn't the world much rougher and don't you have to be harder and meaner to deal with it? I wish that the answer wasn't always yes. 
I, I would like to have seen that question posed and have the answer be no. To some extent, Superman, during the era that Dan and Jerry, Carl Kiesel, oh, I feel Wheezy Simonson, and also Roger Stern, that's his name I was going to when During that era, when Mike Carlin was editing the book, it was, it did acknowledge more of the hard and tough in the world. But he was always Superman, you know? He was always Superman clinging to those values. And not even clinging, just living those values, you know? It's, yeah, I'm not, I'm not so much a let's do superhero stories that challenge the notion of being a superhero. And, uh, and yeah, and I think there was an issue of Action Comics number 775 when it was Superman versus the Elite. Can't remember who wrote it, but it was a brilliant issue where Superman is con- where they make that argument between the idea of the old classic Superman, you know, and kind of the more idealistic Superman versus the hardcore modern type of superhero. And I thought it was a brilliant look at it. And I think to myself, when I look at when I was reading, look at Blue Devil, which was a great comic. I don't see why those comic books don't have a, a home anymore. You need that audience as well. There's no nothing wrong with, with I don't see why you can't fit the universe of Blue Devil and that style with the other comic book and their style and have them exist in the same universe and have it work for all audiences. Well, I think the reason is entirely a business and economic one. There's the monthly comic book was an invention of the 1930s that nobody would have come up with today. And and that business shrank. It shrank precipitously in the 1970s. I was there. I can attest to it. Some great comics were coming out. But it was, but you had new, in the last days of newsstand comic sales, you had, the rat jobbers, the people who put magazines uh, you know, out on newsstands or whether it was candy stores or, or you know, Kmarts or whatever, they often didn't even put the comics out because they were not, they were fully returnable, right, for full credit, mm. and they were not going to make as much money. You know, if it takes, if a comic book takes up the same amount of space as Time magazine, but costs half as much, it's not going to make money. Right. So who's reading comics? The people like me who were getting older. And the people not quite like me, but still my peers, who wanted more grit and grim and gritty, you know? They they latched on to, I mean, man, but by the time that, and this has been true in comics for so long. I mean, in early Marvel, you know, Jack Kirby became the style that everybody was supposed to imitate. When I'm writing comics, by the time Dark Knight Return comes out, you know, the expectation is you got to be like Frank Miller. Mm. And even if it's not spoken, it's it's there. And it's like, what well, they never get, I'm... I'm Deviating somewhat from your question. I'll get back to that. But what the people in charge never got, I think more people get it now. What they never got is that Frank was successful because he was doing something he really believed in. 
Mm. Not because it was grim and gritty, you know? And the answer to Frank's success was not, or Alan Moore's success, was not be like Frank, be like Alan. It was be as committed to your story as they are to their stories. Mm. But nobody ever said that. So anyhow, back to the business thing. So comics are comics distributed on the newsstand are dying. And the direct market comes along. Um, not without some hiccups along the way. I there was so I live in East Lansing, Michigan, where I went to college as an undergraduate. We ended up back here. There was a store that was a branch of a store from Grand Rapids. And they were able to get their comics from their Grand Rapids distributor earlier and put it out on the store to cater to the local comic fans earlier than the larger bookstore served by the Lansing area comics distributor was uh, was a, was getting theirs out on the stands. So as I hear the story, I, you know, because I don't want to be defamed and I'm not naming names, okay? No, fair as enough. As I hear... I, I, I don't want to, def, you know, I don't want to be in a defamation suit, but, but, <laughs> Understandable. but the story I heard is that one of their trucks, the Grand Rapids people got run off the road when they were delivering the shipment of stuff that could have come early for comic book fans like me in East Lansing. So there was that stuff going on. There was a guy then, a guy in my senior year in college who managed to make an arrangement. He lived in my apartment complex. And he had an arrangement with a distributor, so he he got the comics and he knew what people wanted. Because, you know, people who are just putting things out on the racks, they don't know which comics fans care about. Uh, this guy would, he bought some racks, he'd put them out every whatever day of the week it was. And, you know, we'd come out and we'd buy our comics from Frank and he made enough money for his own comics and a little bit on the side. But then the direct market comes along and it, it saves comics. There's no question about it because hmm. the newsstand distribution was untenable. But in my opinion, people can argue with me. I'm sure they will. <laughs> in my opinion, the direct market saved comics and then bit by bit strangled the industry because it was because I can't remember who this was, some small publisher, but a reputable, you know, a writer turned editor in chief of a small publisher who wrote in his text column that, that he wanted to hear from fans what they really wanted. You know, which of the books they read, you know, not just based on sales, you really wanted to get their opinions. And it's like, so you're taking this narrow self-selecting group and you're telling them that you're going to make your business decisions based on even further narrowing that they're going to feed you, mm. which seemed nuts to me. And maybe it was necessary. Okay. But it seemed nuts. And, and so there have been no moments. There have been, you know, the, you know, the multiple cover crazes and things like that. And the ridiculous numbers that the death of Superman issue in the black bag sold, you know. And it's, yeah, it's just crazy. So, so there have been spikes. But, you know, when I was actively writing comics, there was, 
I think there was never a year when the sales that would have gotten you canceled five years earlier were great numbers now. Yeah. You know, right? So Exactly. Um, I mean, I mean, Blue Devil was canceled at, I don't know, 75000 a month. And it's like, so it just, you know, sunk and sunk and sunk. Now, just by the way, the comic book world is healthy and vibrant. It's just not the comic book world that maybe the listeners to your podcast think of as the comic book world, what they might call mainstream comics. Superhero comics are not mainstream comics. I love superhero comics, okay? But the comics that are selling are the ones that are originally published in book form that are sold in bookstores and in comic shops that have owners that understand which way the wind is blowing. I talk to people about Raina Telgemeier. Do you know Raina's work? Honestly, I do not. You do not. Okay. Raina has, has currently, I don't know, five, six of the top 10, uh, books on the New York Times graphic novel bestseller list. She's sold millions and millions of copies. She's heard, you've never heard of her, but I guarantee you that most 12-year-old girls in America that you would run into, if you ask them, would know who she is. And that comic book industry, the one where, you know, where Scholastic, where Arena is published, is working, where First, Second, the Macmillan division, where Abrams Comic Arts sells. I mean, that industry is doing really quite well. That's mainstream comics. I mean, also, I think actually free web comics are also mainstream comics. But the, and, and but you know, Raina started her first really famous book, Smile. I think she did it uh, a, a, as a webcomic first. And she got feedback from fans. And then she'd already been doing some stuff for Scholastic. She'd been adapting the Babysitter Club books. And uh, she took what she'd done, the feedback that she had, and she worked with her editor at Scholastic. And she turned out a book called Smile, which is was a mega hit. And you were mentioning Mouse before. Like Mouse, it's memoir. Memoir is a huge category in comics now. And so much interesting stuff being done. And that's where the action is. You know, if you're talking about volume, right? If you're talking about number of readers, if you're talking about eyeballs. I, it, one of the hats I wear is as a co-founder of the Ann Arbor Comic Arts Festival uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. and we put on a two-day event, actually three-day. On, on Friday, we do a thing. We do a conference for teachers and librarians and cartoonists. And then Saturday and Sunday, we have our Artist Alley. It's free. It's at the Ann Arbor District Library's main branch. And it's, it's big and it's fun. And Raina has come to it many times. People like books you probably don't know, like Baby Mouse by Jenny and Matt Holmes probably never heard of baby mouse right um i have uh, not 
Okay, so that's okay. That's okay. So, and that's for quite, that's like early readers. But so Matt, Jenny and Matt are sister and brother, and, and Matt came out for one of our shows. Ben Hackey, who does Z to the Space Girl and Mighty Jack, which you might also not have heard of, but are really doing well, comes out to our show. This is, you know, we actually have very little, sometimes to my regret, very little in the way of superhero people come out yeah. um, because it's it's sort of not the brand that we've developed. But, you know, the people who do superhero stuff that's, um, that's accessible to, to any reader that doesn't need a doesn't need a, a warning on the cover or a sign on the artist's yeah. table that says talk to me before you open this book um, <laughs> you know those people are welcome we've, we've had some we've had some of that but it's it's like steve lieber came out one time uh uh steve used to live in ann arbor he's in portland now but you know we said steve Come out. You're doing whatever that Spider-Man book was that he was doing. So he, you know, <laughs> I can't even yeah. remember. Now. And uh, and, and I was saying, I was thinking, you know, and we're, as we're talking about the ideas of of what's going on with comic books throughout the years, and I, I was thinking about what's going to because you mentioned Blue Devil. I found Blue Devil. What happened to that character? An, an, a, a great representation of the industry. Your character started off as a very fun character. He was a stuntman. He got stuck in like in a basically in a devil suit and kind of became a hero from from that point. And later on in the mid nineties, he the character makes a deal with the demon neuron to become an actual demon. You lose that lightness when becomes when he transitions over to being a true demon. At that point, I found that kind of that's almost represent re- representative of the industry as, as well. When you took something that's really light and fun, and we had to be they kind of had to twist it and to make it darker, edgier, and yeah, far and, more serious. And, and, you know, some of the people who've written these Blue Devil stories who are not me and Gary are friends of mine, okay? And and I know that they love the character. But but they don't... Either they're, they're, they're operating, what does the market want now? Which I think is always a bad idea. You know, I'm I I am uh, egotistical enough to say that the readers don't know what they want until I tell them what they want. Um, hey, it's probably true. Well, you know, I think that, I think that's a, there's a lot of truth in that in the whole in all sorts of creative endeavors. Um, but the 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 uh, the people who did that, you know, were trying to make it work in a different way. The person who I think came closest to making uh, Blue Devil work was Bill Willingham uh, mm. when he in Shadow Pact. He, he really had a good feel for the character. He was doing a different kind of story and he had to accept some of the baggage that had been placed on the character already. But he really seemed to, to get him. And actually, I when Shadow Pact was first coming out, I was at San Diego at the con and there's Bill, and I walk up behind him and say, Bill, hey, how you doing? And he says, Dan, just the person I've been hoping and dreading I'd run into. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, but it was, I, no, I told him it was fine. I thought that he really, 
he really had a feel for the character. So, uh, I mean, it, at times Shadow Pact Red, like it was, you know, Blue Devil with a different supporting cast. Um, and it was a great series. I remember, I, yeah. I remember it well. Yeah, it, it, it was good. So, yeah, you know, it's the idea, you know, people who didn't quite get that Nebiros, the, the demon that inadvertently give melds blue devil in uh, dan cassidy in his blue devil suit people people have treated him like a, a demon who makes bargains for souls and stuff like that and he's not he's a monster that eats people i mean <laughs> he's and he's as gary said i think very very pithily he said he's a Nebiros is stupid as only the enormously powerful can be stupid. That's a great phrase. You know? Yeah. You know, it's some might apply it to our current president, but I, I'm not. <laughs> um, I'll agree with you there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, yeah. I mean, no, I mean, Nebiros never knew that, that or never grasped that blue devil was a guy in a devil suit. He just, he never got it. You know, he always refers to, to Cassidy as, oh, little brother, let's go, you know, whatever he's going to do. But he thinks of him as another demon. It's just a smaller, you know, different demon. He just doesn't, he just doesn't get stuff because he doesn't have to. Yeah. Because he's so damn powerful. Yeah. So. Uh, did, did, it, did it bother you when you found out that Blue Devil was being made into an actual demon? Or, did, or once you let go of your baby, as it were, do you kind of just kind of relax about what happens or decide to walk away from what happens to that character? I think the answer is complicated. So let me start with this. When we signed the contracts for Amethyst and Blue Devil, which were at the time really generous, I mean, Paul Levitz and DC were trying to put something together that would really encourage people to create new, new characters and potentially valuable intellectual property for the company. And the deal was you get 12 issues guaranteed and you don't own the character, but you do get the creators jointly get 20% of any licensing money that comes in. Seems like a good deal. So here's what, at 29 years old, I did not see, is that not creatively controlling my own character was going to be heartbreaking. Mm. Um, it's, you know, it's, now sometimes people do, good stuff. Amy Reader's current Amethyst series is lovely. I'm really enjoying it. But Amethyst has not always been treated like that. I mean, at one point, they basically decided, the, as I, the best I can piece it together, they said, do we have a character that we can turn into kind of a Hunger Games story? And they aged up Amethyst and did that. You know? I didn't really read it. I kind of looked at the first issue and it was like, no, not interested. And I did, I was able to kind of put it out of my mind. And the artwork on that series was beautiful, by the way. But it still, it still was something I didn't want to go near. So mostly, I don't go near the stuff. More in the case of Amethyst. If it's, if it's bad Amethyst, I, it bothers me more than bad Blue Devil. Why is that? 
I, I, I really don't know what the what the reason is. It, it may only be because Amethyst is really 13 years old and Blue Devil's all grown up and he can take care of himself. Uh, but, <laughs> gotcha. but, but it's in the case of Blue Devil, he is treated as a superhero. I mean, he never wanted to be a superhero. He keeps telling people he's not a superhero. But the, in form, his stories are superhero stories. Uh, and superhero stories are, they're kind of ephemeral. They're one issue to the next. They're one writer to the next. They're whatever. When Amethyst has been remade, she's really been remade, you know? It's been like, it wasn't like she, I guess she has popped up now and then, but I haven't even looked at those. When there's a new Amethyst series, right? It's like, okay, we're going to, we're going to think, we're going to think about what this character should be when it's pretty clear what that character should be from the mm. original Maxi series, you know? Now, Amy's idea which was to have her be three years older. Now she's 16 and she has not been back to the gem world. That's a good setup for going forward with Amethyst. And she also, she was given freedom to pick and choose what she wanted to keep from our stuff and what she didn't. And that's really fine. Did, did, did she ask you, did, 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 did she ask you um, or ask for your permission first? Oh no, nobody else. Okay. Look, I wouldn't have asked for permission. I'm not because I don't want to badmouth anybody. You know, I was, I am sure that I treated other people's characters pretty cavalierly. You know, that I just did what I thought was good for the moment. And in Amy's case, what she's done is thoughtful. I mean, I never hear from, I don't hear from people who are going to write my characters. I don't hear from DC. If there's going to be a reprint that comes out with my stuff in it, I find out either from a fan or because a package arrives on my doorstep. <laughs> you know, I don't hear if there's going to be, I didn't hear from DC that there's going to be an Amethyst series, a new Amethyst series. It just, I heard it through the grapevine, you know, that's just not the way they, they operate. I heard that Blue Devil is going to appear in Swamp Thing because somebody told me. I, by the way, I really liked, there's very little Blue Devil in Swamp Thing, but there's a lot of Dan Cassidy and I thought that Ian Ziering, the actor who played him, was mm. really good. He was older than our Cassidy, but he really got him down. You know, he's I I really like that. But you know, and and again, this is something that was done by the Swan Thing series by people who knew our character and loved our character. But that, and in this case, they did good stuff. <laughs> but that's no guarantee. You know, knowing the character and loving the character. There's no guarantee. So it's like, hi, hey, what's going to happen next? When I, when I tell people about how much I hear from DC, the, the one that I've come up with in the last year has been, so, you know, the next Wonder Woman movies is Wonder Woman 1984. I was the only person writing Wonder Woman in 1984. Yeah. And what I tell people is, I'll find out if they're using any of my stuff if they invite me to the premiere, you know? <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the first, that's the first I'm going to know about it. Um, so, uh, oh. yeah.
<laughs> we are back. What'd you think? Well, it's it's always good. Yeah, I don't Man, know how else to put it. It's always good. Jeff it is, yeah, he's been killing it lately. Thank thank you, Jeff, for for keeping the the ship a sail right now, as they say, because uh, we just had a lot been going on, and so when one falls, the other one picks up and runs with that ball. Yeah, that's what that's what's good about having a really good team because. You know, we've got all of us doing what we do, and it's it's amazing. So, thank you, everybody who's involved. Yeah. Uh, is how? What do you feel about the Blue Devil? I've always thought the Blue Devil was a fun character, but I honestly yeah. don't know much about him. I've read a couple stories with him in it, and I've seen him on like I, I believe he was in one of the cartoons I used to watch. But I uh, um, he's in Swamp Thing. I want to. I want to. He was in Swamp Thing. I want to. I want to read more. Like there's a mini series that they did back in the eighties and eighties and nineties that I've always looked at and seen like, oh, this looks fun, but I never actually sat down and read it, but now I want to read it. Who came first? Blue Devil or Hellboy? Uh Blue Devil, I believe. Because it just seems like they're very I don't want to say they're similar, but they're they're similar. <laughs> well, because they're both one's blue, one's red, and they both have horns ish. Yeah, I mean uh, they're just kind of the Blue Devil Blue Blue Devil by nine years. So oh, Hellboy wow. was 93, Blue Devil was 84. I'm not saying they're the same. Like, they're not the same as, as like, because Hellboy is like an investigator and, you know. Yeah. I mean, to me, Hellboy is Batman, but as a devil. Right, right. Kind of. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, kind of. No, that's a bad, that's no, a bad analogy. That's a bad, no, I, I don't know why I'm saying yeah, kind of, because it's not even close. He's yeah, definitely like Batman. Uh, well, yeah, when you think about it more, you're like, no, they're just both investigators. Yeah. I mean, but I can see like Blue say, Devil like being Hellboy's inf- like John Constant because they both wear trench coats. Right. I could just see Blue <laughs> Devil being an influence to Hellboy. Yeah. That's oh, what I'm sure. trying to say. I can say. see that too. Yeah. And I can see yeah. it. Or if Hellboy came first, vice versa. All right. Right, you know? right, right, right. Well, but nothing beyond more no. than an influence. Yeah, yeah. So that was part one. We got part yeah. two coming up because it, it was kind of funny. As you probably noticed there, there was all of a sudden at the end of that episode, there was like a break of like, it just the, their connection dropped, right? It just, it just failed. Yeah, and then instead of just getting back on and finishing the conversation, they just did a whole another episode. So <laughs> coming up soon, you have a whole another episode because they just didn't want to start over. They just did a whole new thing. Oh, that's hilarious! I've done that. Where oh, yeah. actually, I did it where we were like twenty minutes in, and I was like, "Oh my god, I didn't hit record." <laughs> and I told, and it was, uh, "Oh my god, Matthew." He, yeah, he he's Reverse Flash. Yeah, I can't remember his name though. Oh, and he was so nice about it and he was like oh yeah let's just let's just do it again it's just thing that's lame is that he said this wonderful story about him writing a play and his parents matt coming lesher. and yeah matt lesher that's right and uh i just i felt so bad you know what i mean because we couldn't you, sometimes you capture lightning twice sometimes you do it once and it's you think it's good but it's not and the second time is you're capturing lightning in a bottle and you're having right. this amazing conversation and you're you're getting them to open up like you know We've had some people on that said, well, I'll, I can come on for 20 minutes and they stay for 90 minutes because we get them to really open up. Right. Because people love us. Yeah. We're, we're, it, it we're amazing. It, it does happen. And then other times, uh, man, you capture lightning the first time. And then the second time, it's good, but it's not that first take. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, it's my two cents. But oh, there you go. There you go. So come back later on for part two of Dan and Jeff talking. But for now, Kendrick, what do they got to do? Well, I would say if you enjoyed what you heard and you want to hear more in that same vein, or maybe you just want to hear some other stuff that we do, because we have other episodes that are not interview intense. They're just John and I talking, subject matter talk, a bunch of other things. Go to spoilerverse.com. 
Check out our back issues. There's going to be a lot there. And on top of that, there's a lot of podcasts there that you can check out. There's some great stuff. Yeah, so much good podcasts there. Like, check out, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to promote one right now. I want you to check out Misery Point Radio because Mike Peacock does an amazing job with everything he does on that show, and that guy needs some more loving. So get over there, check that out, leave some comments, subscribe some to Misery Point Radio because it's a great, great show. There you go. And while you go to com, check out all of our reviews, our previews, and our press releases, and everything else we have there. Leave some comments because we love comments. And go to our store, buy a t-shirt, buy a hoodie, look fly as hell, get all the fine girls and fellas you want, and do all that fun stuff. And the last thing I want you to do is I want you to go to scpod.us slash discord and join our discord channel because we're there all the time. We're chatting, we're talking with people. We're going to be doing some fun giveaway stuff there soon. So go check it out because you know you want to. If you're a Hannibal fan from the TV show, we got a ton of Hannibal stuff to give away. Oh, we got so much stuff. So again, scpod.net, or sorry, scpod.us slash discord. Go there and join the discord and come say hi and have some fun. There you guys go. All right. Johnny. What's that? In an ocean's of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. That's Cthulhu compels you to do. Never mind. Please.